2: that the Inuits have 30 different words for snow, or however that whole thing goes, then there would have to be as a matter of scale at least 100 words in the kind of Judeo-Christian lexicon for regret. Because if you have to follow a lot of rules, you're gonna regret not doing some of the things that were out of bounds. And if you break the rules, so you can do those things, then there's a different kind of regret. Although I would argue that that's just guilt. I regret, sort of, a lot of things that I did in the 90s. But mainly, I feel guilty about doing these things, most of which I did because I didn't want to regret not doing them. So in the movie Defending Your Life, Albert Brooks dies, and he's transported to an afterlife that I think is called Judgment City, where the angels are, are judges and advocates and where each soul is penalized for shallow or cowardly choices and rewarded for bold ones. It's, it's a, a film in which Brooks has essentially externalized his own regret system. And his, his angel lawyer or advocate is, is played by Rip Torn, and, and Rip Torn says that for human beings— the biggest problem is fear. Did you have friends
3: whose stomachs hurt? Every one of them is fear. Fear is like a giant fog.
1: It sits on your brain and blocks everything. Real feelings, true happiness, real joy. They can't get through that fog. But you lift it. And buddy, you're in for the ride of your life. So I'm on trial for being afraid. Well, first of all, I don't like to call it a trial. Second of all, yes.
2: Second of all, yes. But maybe the other problem is it's just the way the universe is set up, right? Most of us are not Schrodinger's cat oscillating between two possible quantum states. Most of us go through life choosing road after road, at fork after fork, and leaving behind us this kind of branching, leafless tree of unchosen possibilities. So how how can we not regret? So that's what we've been thinking about. We have great guests for you today. Uh, A little bit later, you're going to meet the person whose essay got us thinking uh, about this whole topic. Uh, And a little bit later in the show, we're going to take a slightly darker turn and talk about maybe the most horrifyingly profound regret that a person can have, but I'm going to save that for a bit. Um, we had sort of vowed not to do this show without Jonathan Goldstein, writer, humorous, producer of Heavyweight, a pod- podcast by Gimlet Media, which the way a tongue might probe a sore tooth, probes exactly a lot of these kinds of questions uh, among people that he knows uh, and people he is meeting for the purpose of doing just that. He's a former radio producer for This American Life, uh, a former host of Wiretap on CBC Radio. I'm a big fan uh, of him and and everything that he does, and it seemed crazy to do a show about regret without getting Jonathan involved. So, uh, Jonathan, first of all, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me here.
2: You know, there's something very unfashionable about regret, right? I mean, there's a way in which that's really something that weak people do. I mean, that's what our culture tells us. But I don't know. There's a sort of a richness in a lot of the regret in the stories that that you wind up exploring.
1: Yeah, I mean, oftentimes I'm questioning the very premise of the show. (laughs) <laughs> um r- really like I I often uh wonder there's always a certain point in each story where I wonder whether this was a bad idea um to have like opened up this can of worms
2: Right. And so, I mean, I, I want to give people some quick examples. Um, and first of all, I'm in mean the show on the show. You've tracked down the owner owner of a trunk of 20 year old love letters found on a street in Brooklyn, coaxed a friend to finally honor the deathbed promise he made to his dad 16 years ago and helped your own mother open up about who she really is and why your childhood was the way it was growing up. Let's hear a little bit from this episode. You're visiting your family with your wife, Emily, uh, and for the first time with your new son. And you're trying to understand your mom and the fearfulness that was just injected into all kinds of everyday situations. Let's hear a little bit.
0: But But what is it supposed to be warding off? The evil eye. But what is the evil eye? This is how conversations with Dina often go. They derail, hit dead ends. So when I ask her, why was our home the way it was? I expect more of the same. But instead, my mother grows quiet.
4: I worry.
0: Yeah, I do too. I, I, do I was too. afraid
4: I- of this, afraid of that. Oh. I was irrational. I wasn't thinking right, and I have a chance to redo my a little bit—not with you, but with Augie.
0: She stops talking, and stares into her lap. For a while, we just sit there. I'm, I look upon this as a second chance.
4: I want to correct my mistakes, Johnny.
0: I want to redeem myself. That's it.
2: Um, Quite a soliloquy, Jonathan Goldstein. But it sounds a little bit like Rip Torn in defending your life. Your mother's putting herself on trial at that moment for fear. The idea that she let fear rule too much of her life and then therefore too much of yours. And once again, as you say, there's that other overlay of should we even be trying to talk about this?
1: Yeah, and it's funny that you did mention Defending Your Life, because that movie, when I first saw it when I was much younger, had a profound effect on me that Albert Brooks gave fear this moral dimension. And I had always been telling myself growing up that, you know, that my mother's fear, my family's fear, it was a function of love. And I was having that conversation with a therapist who said, you know, some people might even say that fear is the opposite of love, and that, you know, that love is the transcendence of fear. And that's something that Albert Brooks picks up on, and ultimately in that story with my mother, I mean, uh, she's talking about getting another chance with Augie who is my infant son and, you know we we I, I come to this conclusion which has to do with how life is a series of, of you know, on one hand there's the regret, but then there's the second chances and the third chances and the fourth chances and how parenthood is a redo of your own childhood and grandparenthood is a redo of your parenthood And that is the process of life, where we learn these lessons, and we forget them, and we relearn them, and um, and you know, and that's what we do.
2: Right. And now that I know that you know the movie, it's exactly what Rip Torn says too. He says, Albert Brooks says, "Well, what happens if if I'm not judged worthy to go on to the next phase of existence?" And he goes, "We send you back, and you know, and we just keep sending you back and sending you back, and eventually we might give up on you." but that's pretty much the way that episode of your podcast ends, too. Not that you're literally sent back to a different incarnation to do this all over again, but time and and iterative generations send us back to the same set of choices that existed in our childhoods.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and what Rip Torn is talking about is it happening in a kind of on a cosmic level, and, you know, um, with, with certain sprinkling of Buddhism, what have you. But yeah, it's something that we... We play out over the course of a lifetime. I mean, it, there's a secular version of it, um, which, yeah, we play out over the course of our life. You know, uh, hopefully, I mean, we, you know, we just try to, and we see it also. I mean, if we're, t- you know, uh, if we're turning to movies for for um, kind of like um, moral guidance or something, like we see it in Groundhog's Day too. You know, that movie where he has an opportunity to relive the same day over and over and over and what's inter- and, and and finally achieving the perfect day what we don't find out in that movie is really how long he's been reliving this day mm-hmm. you know it might be for a millennia you know before we actually do get it right and you know that might only be for mortal beings i mean we don't we get some parts right mm-hmm. but we don't we we just we can we just can't get it all right
2: so another thing i think that all of us discover is that we can be living a a happy and satisfying life and still have regrets about fundamental basic choices we made because, as I said at the beginning, you know, we're not in some kind of quantum universe. I mean, you know, you are who you are, therefore you gave up on a whole bunch of other things that you could have been. This is a theme in in an episode of yours called Jeremy. This has to do with uh, you thinking at 16 that you you might be a rabbi uh, and uh, involves Jeremy, an atheist who wanted to join Judaism. You meet 30 years after that. Let's hear a little bit about how, of how that goes.
0: It, it there was a time when the first thing I'd always want to know was like when I would meet someone new is whether they believed in God. And so is it,
2: that idea you meet a person and they say they believe in God. Well, what does that tell you about the person? Almost nothing. Or I just felt or, like or a, they don't believe in God. And what does that tell you? Nothing.
0: But I, I, I felt like it was almost like the most important thing to know in order to live. You know what I and mean? And the least
2: important thing. Because don't you wanna just discover who the person is and then decide how close they are to God regardless of what they believe or not?
0: Yeah, it it became kind of moot. Like I felt like, well, um, if you can't know, or I couldn't know or or feel that I knew that I had to figure out how to live an okay life Anyway,
2: so Jonathan Goldstein, tell us a little bit more about this conversation. What it is, what is it that you two guys are pro? uh, What are you probing at?
1: Well, Jeremy is. um, I mean, again, I mean, speaking to your idea about quantum universes, or you know, I think there's an aspect of us that um, just I don't know, or at least I feel it. Like I just kind of wish that I could subdivide and lead many different lives, and maybe there's an aspect. To us, um, call it a spirit or what have you, that uh, exists outside of time and is constantly moving backwards and sideways as much as we're moving forward through time. I, I don't know, but in, the, in, the, in, in this particular case with Jeremy, uh, Jeremy was a guy who I met at a dinner uh, when I was a, a teenager and uh, we met at a, a rabbi's house. A rabbi was having us over for dinner and um I just saw him as kind of like an alternate dimension, me, um, because as I was sort of drifting away from the faith, he was drifting towards it. He was this um, uh, a non-Jew who was in the process of converting to Judaism, and I was a Jew who was sort of like rejecting a lot of the, um, the precepts of Judaism, and I always wondered what became of him. And so I looked him back up, and I found out that he had really gone the distance in a way that I hadn't. He was now... Um, a very rabbinical kind of guy, with like you know six kids and le- leading a very religious life. But the thing that was interesting as we sat down to have that conversation was that in a lot of ways, like we weren't as different as I would have anticipated. You know, we still, even though he had he had you know faith and and maybe I did, I don't or not in the same way. There was still a lot of we still wrestled with a lot of the same things. So it seems like even if you phrase those 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 questions that you have um, about regret and and otherwise uh, through a secular frame or through a religious frame, in some ways, like right, we're you know we're just all wrestling with the same things.
2: Um, yes, and which leads me to another um, point that I extract really not just even from heavyweight but from the entire corpus of the of Jonathan Goldstein's work, and that is, I mean, one of the things I think you do really well, and that I. I kind of envy, I don't know how much uh, of what I'm envying is completely real and how much of it is uh, maybe uh, foregrounded for the purpose of doing the kind of shows that you do, but the people around you, uh, your friends, your longtime friends, and of course your family, seem to have such a uh, an important effect on you, and when we think of a, of regret, I see I see regret as a very solitary experience, right? I did or didn't do something, and I am going to sit there and and think in a very negative way about that. It just isn't any it isn't a team sport as far as I'm concerned. But there's a way in which you get a lot of people involved with you, and you get involved with a lot of people. I want to play a clip, and we can talk a little bit more about this. This is uh, from James. This is you helping your friend James. I mentioned this before, uh, he had made a deathbed promise to his father to spread his father's ashes on the 18th hole of a uh, golf course, uh, and then he didn't do it for 16 years. Uh, So uh, you uh, and uh, uh, Howard join James for the purpose of finally bringing this uh, to its proper state.
0: I just wanted to get us all together to strategize a little bit. So Howard, is there any uh, wisdom or experience that you could bring to bear from you know past things that you've done like
1: this from from my, my previous heist experience yeah
5: well we shouldn't do acid or get too
1: high yeah that's in room one some booze maybe might help steal steal our nerves
0: so do you want to try to go there and play golf
5: no I've ne- I've never golfed I, I I don't know how to golf so I've never golfed either
1: and it's the eighteenth hole too so. I wish it was the first hole, because we could just go and suck and, and, and then do our thing. Yeah. He specifically needs the 18th hole, right? 18th hole.
3: It's the last hole. Now,
1: but if there's someone there watching us, how do, we, how do we do it? The clubhouse is near the 18th hole. It looks over the 18th hole, so that's another challenge. What's, what's the clubhouse? Clearly, there was a lot of work
0: to be done.
2: But, you know, Jonathan, for James, this this kind of regret or guilt or whatever we're going to call it, it ordinarily would be a very solitary thing. And and it seems like the minute you get to other people involved, you're you're almost cured at that point. I don't know. Maybe you can say a little bit more about just why we need other people in these situations.
1: I think um, and what you say about being cured at a certain point is something that people do experience in the process of working on these stories where they feel like, you know, we don't need to go any further. I already feel better. Uh, is a common kind of feeling, because sometimes it's just... You know what it is? I think it's crossing the line between shame into regret and guilt. I think shame could be more isolating um, and lead to paralysis. But once I think you're able to vocalize it and turn it into something that becomes you know shared or a social occasion... That's when it you know it makes the leap from shame to guilt. This is like a very really at the bottom of the aspirational ladder, but mm-hmm. if you could get it from shame to guilt, then you have a vision you've turned your your dream into a project, and you can get other people on board and guilt and regret right. i as you know as the, I guess the show uh shows people can be uh motivating mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so I, I think I think yeah, I think it's making the the journey from shame to guilt.
2: Right, and and I think our expectation too about other people is. If we tell them this thing, there's only one possible reaction that they can have. Really? You didn't honor your father's deathbed, deathbed wishes? You're a disgusting pig. You know, and, and the fact is that when we share these things with people, quite frequently they, they're glad to hear somebody else is walking around with, with some kind of burden. And in the case of you and Howard, you're ready to help.
1: Yeah, and people, people ideally, the best episodes are the ones that people can really relate to. And, and you know, I should also say that it's like, it's a, um, it is a war of attrition in a way. It's like, do you just sort of put it off? You're like, hey, should I take care of my dad's ashes? Should I, like, pull that, you know, that, that canister that's rolling around in the back of the trunk and finally, like, lay it to rest tonight? But, eh, you know what? Maybe I'll just have dinner and... You know, watch TV with my wife instead, and like that's how life goes. And as you get older, you begin to see that like the like so goes those days, uh, so too like passes the decades, and uh, before you know it, you're a guy who hasn't honored your father's request for the past 16 years because other things get in the way.
2: All right, let's just talk about one more episode here, Um, because I mean, a lot of this falls into that category. Not to keep going back to the sacred text of the book uh, of Albert. But, you know, a lot of the what are sins in that movie, so to speak, are sins of inaction, passivity, failure to grab the moment, carpe diem, failure to speak up, failure fail, failure, to even act in your own behalf with maybe a woman that you're in love with. Um, so here we've got Kendra. Uh, she's a woman who found a suitcase. Uh, it's full of letters. Uh, these letters uh, involve a woman called Isabel, and Kendra's been hanging on to this suitcase. How long has she had it, uh, Jonathan?
1: Kendra, at the time that I saw her boy, I don't—I uh, mean, it was, a, it was a sizable chunk of time. Yeah. Like, it was several years at, at the very least—
2: Right. So, but, I mean, yeah.
1: the letters themselves have been passed on to like were originally found, I think, like 20 years earlier. Right. they had been basically sitting around in one person's basement or another's for about almost two decades.
2: So let's hear you and Kendra talk about this.
6: This is from Christmas Eve, 1990. And she says, Brad, today I got the best Christmas present ever. I'm talking about your letter and picture. Thank you so much for telling me your true feelings. Ooh, this is like a really personal one. You should not be afraid that I won't be there for you when you might need me. I want to be there. You are my boyfriend and friend also. To me, you're more important than any other friend I have. I guess that with time, our trust toward each other will grow. Just as each day I feel I know you a little bit more. Believe me, I'm also scared of getting hurt. I figured that if I'm scared that you might hurt me and you're scared that I might hurt you, then it must mean that we both know we don't want to hurt the other person, no? The last thing I would want to do is to hurt you or even see you hurt. It's it's so romantic. It's just so, it's so vulnerable. They both were so afraid of getting hurt. And I mean, that's how people always go into relationships, you know, and then probably at least one of them did get hurt in the end.
2: So, Jonathan, we talk about baggage. We talk about emotional baggage. This is literally emotional baggage. Uh, Somebody walking around with a bag of somebody else's uh, emotions. Say a little bit more about the the meaning of this story ultimately to you.
1: Well, so where the story uh, led me to was, so this was like five years worth of correspondence uh, from the one side correspondence, the the, the young woman who was writing these letters. um, And it they were found on a corner in Brooklyn, in a street corner in a suitcase. And my idea was to get these letters back to the woman who had written them all these years later because it seemed like it was such a... like um, a peephole onto that particular moment in her life uh, all those years ago. Like It was like finding all these journals and stuff. And, and you know, assuming that everybody's like me, I thought she was going to be thrilled to be reunited with these letters. Uh, but as, as as I was to learn... She didn't care. Like, she was like, that's the past, and uh, I've moved on with my life, and I don't need them. And she described herself as someone who never has ever saved any letters that were sent to her and keeps her inbox, you know, her email inbox completely empty, deleting emails as she reads them. Essentially, she was the exact opposite of me. And um, we ended up, at the end of the episode, just having a conversation where we were trying to persuade each other of our of our philosophies, you know, about like where I was saying, you know, that it's interesting to see the ways in which not only the ways in which we've changed, um, when we, when we look back at who we were in the past, but the ways in which we've remained the same and trying to locate, you know, call it what you will, that, that thing that, that kind of, that thing that persists a soul or, you know, that, that essence um and her philosophy was you know you learn from the past and you let it go and that's it and um it was kind of like these dueling viewpoints you know which um which i hopefully you know people listening could kind of like relate to both both sides to some extent
2: yeah. And, and I want to end here that we're about to talk in our next segment to Karina Chicano, whose essay kind of prompted our our exploration of this whole topic. But she mentions in her essay a piece written by a friend of hers. And I looked up this piece and her friend had sort of noticed the degree to which the phrase no regrets had kind of become a pervasive multifarious brand. So it turns out there are a lot of tattoo parlors across the United States that are called No Regrets. Uh, and it's also a Long Beach Accessories shop, and it's the title of Ace Frehley's memoir. I believe he's a member of the rock group Kiss. Uh, it's a South, Southern California mini truck club. It's, it's the name of somebody's beach house that they rent out on, on Airbnb or something. There's a No Regrets Stationery store, and a No Regrets Career Academy. And there's this kind of sense that that's really the bodhisattva state, you know, is to have no regrets. But, you know, to the point that you just made about those two differing viewpoints, it seems to me no regrets is this kind of spiritually barren state. If you don't have any regrets, are you even human?
1: Yeah, I mean, hearing what you're saying is, like, making me feel like I should open up a tattoo removal place next door (laughs) called Regrets. Um, I I mean, I think, ultimately, yes, we do want to get to a place of no regrets, ultimately. But I think sometimes it's just as though we've leapfrogged over a lot of regretting in order to just, like, blanketly say, yep, you know, like, wiping our hands, you know, clean of the whole thing and saying no regrets, um I think they need I think like sometimes it's confused with moral reckonings or being a reflective human being. Um I don't think I'd wanna hang out very much with like someone who truly believed that they had no regrets, like uh, like Gene Simmons or something. <laughs> um I think it's something that we, we can aspire towards and hopefully we'll feel like that on our deathbed. But I think yeah. like um just glibly getting yourself a tattoo that says no regrets, you might be jumping the gun.
2: Right. Jeffrey Dahmer probably has no regrets. Um, All right. So we're going to stop here. But I hope that if you haven't discovered uh, Jonathan's podcast, Heavyweight, now you're going to do that. It's part of the Gimlet Media Group. Jonathan Goldstein, thank you for being part of this show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure.
2: All right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to then introduce you to the person who really kind of started us down this path with her essay. So when I was in my 20s, uh, I uh, ran into, I mean, not just ran into, but found myself um frequently in contact with, these two women who were in their 40s. Uh, they were married. They were living in a small town. They were part of a very close-knit community in that small town. Um, and frankly, they were unhappy. But what they used to say was that they didn't want to have any regrets. when they, they, they said, when we're old and sitting on a porch in our rocking chairs, we don't want to regret not doing something. We want to have done it. And from my vantage point, then in my 20s, I thought, oh, no, you're, you're, you have a lot of regrets. You married guys you don't think are that interesting, and you have this life that you don't think is that interesting. And that's where you're kind of out of control right now. And you're probably doing a whole, whole bunch of other things that you're going to regret as a result of that. So a lot of this does kind of depend on where – uh, on the continuum, we are at any given moment how we think about regret, uh, and that leads well, I think, into Karina Chicano uh, She is uh, the author of *Play the Girl*, *On Playboy Bunny Step for Wives*, *Trainwrecks*, and other mixed messages. Contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, and most significantly for our purposes, and anybody who listens to this show should know that we read this magazine slash website all the time and get ideas from it, but we've never learned how to pronounce the name of it. It's either called. Ion or Eon, but anyway, it's A-E-O-N. She wrote this essay that I came across and gave to Betsy Kaplan, and I said, we have to do a show about this. This is a show about regret. So, um, Karina, first of all, welcome to our show.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: So this is, um, uh, in in writing this essay, you first of all explore your own tendency toward and capacity for regret. Give us a sense of, of what that is for you.
4: Well, I think that what prompted me to write it is probably that I'm a very ruminative person and I tend to dwell on I tend to sort of I guess investigate and like root around and and try to locate like the moment where things went wrong mm-hmm. and it's 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 a habit and I know it's a bad habit and it's a habit that like the culture is constantly telling me that I should change and so I started to I decided to write about it just to try to understand better what I was doing and why, you know, what what was wrong with it or or maybe what was right about it and why I was doing it.
2: Right. Just because the culture is constantly telling us not to do it and to change and get away from it. That doesn't mean it's a bad habit. And I think that's the tension that's there in your piece. Right. If you don't have Mm -hmm. any regret, you don't have any capacity to learn from your life.
4: Right, exactly. And I, I was listening to the comment you made that leading into this conversation about the, the women that you knew, the older women that you knew when you were in your 20s. And I thought it's fascinating um, because we do think of it, you know, we, there's such a dissonance and such a disconnect between sort of, I think, projecting feelings of regret or guarding against regret by claiming not to have any regret. Um, and it just—it's kind of a thought stopper. It's you know, it kind of like basically says, "Don't think about that," you know, "Don't examine it," and and just move forward. But I'm very suspicious of those kinds of um, those kinds of prerogatives.
2: Right. Well, I mean, in your piece, for example, you describe uh, having taken a job uh, for more money uh, and ultimately <laughs> figuring out, ha- having solicited and gotten a little bit of advice, but having it be such a surreptitious process vis-a-vis the job that you were in that you couldn't really talk to a lot of people about it and then handled uh-huh. other parts of it in a way that you now regret. Um, but, I mean, I read that as sort of saying, well, I mean, other than going through that, like kitty litter and kind of lifting out the little clumps of it that you do you regret, I don't see how you make any progress in life. I mean, if you just shut the door on it, then where are you?
4: Yeah, it, it's true. And, you know, it's, I wrote this, this piece a couple of years ago. So it, this was sort of like um, my of uh, uh, an initial step in trying to figure this out. So, I, so in some ways, I think that now I would say that um, at the time, I think that I probably believed that there was this parallel universe that I you know, this parallel path that I didn't take and that that was the right path um, and that it exists, you know, it's somewhere to the left of my plane of existence, you know, and I'm not on it. But now I think my thinking has evolved on that and I would say I think that, you know, you make these decisions and then, then the world reorganizes around that decision and there isn't a sort of, you know, there isn't this, this path not taken the path kind of disappears when you don't take it
2: right i mean it's it's uh, yeah there isn't like this platonic ideal set of choices for you that would have be would have formed themselves into a a, a staircase of shining steps that lead up to this world in the clouds there's mm-hmm. just a bunch of choices that you make that as you say then create other choices uh, and and there's really ultimately no way of knowing whether you made the right choice or not, although yeah go ahead
4: yeah it's kind of like the only way through is through right like yeah. there's no there is no there is no actual um, alternative
2: right and i think yeah on the other hand, as you point out there's some way in which regret, I mean, regret is a healthy thing in some ways, and it's it's something we shouldn't completely shut out of our lives. But it really is, you know, I mean, I quoted from your friend's piece about the tattoo parlors and the mini truck clubs and stuff, and they're all called no regrets because, like, that's the best way to be. That's how to be free. But I... You know, and and as you point out, there's a sense in which oh maybe it's a little bit gendered, maybe it's it's a suspiciously female, possibly French, uh, <laughs> morbid interior. There's something. So some, some, some Americans are very distrustful of all this.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely kind of identity issues wrapped around with it. And and my friend Chris Collins wrote, I think I think his piece was like a year after mine. It wasn't very long after mine, and it was funny because I wrote about regret. And then he wrote about the culture of no regrets
6: mm-hmm.
4: um and but we kind of arrived at a similar similar place, and that is that there's something about this imperative not to have any regrets that does not allow for um, reflection uh, and especially like to reflect on moral or ethical decisions and to look at how these things turned out I mean, as he points out in his piece, you know we live in um in a country where, you know, this imperative to have no regrets is really, really strong. And it's really, it's underscored by like pop psychology and, you know, this kind of business, all these sort of new business psychology books. And, um, and yet, you know, we live in a country that has done things that it should regret (laughs) and still does. And if we can't, if we, if we always, you know, think of ourselves as, um, the exception and always on the on the side of you know all that is good and and right uh we just lose the capacity to own own a mistake and correct for it and that is really dangerous i think and it's sort of it leads us to kind of where we are now with this sort of this, this inability to really um um to to really own uh mistakes
2: right um, we had a long conversation on the show on Monday about this kind of almost sought-after loneliness of, of our country right now. We don't uh-huh. really want to even share our thoughts with with anybody else, or share the planet with anybody else. And I, I think it, the, this is one symptom of it. Um, Karina Chicano, thank you so much for your time today, and thank you so much for getting us started with the essay that you wrote uh, about regret for either Eon or I- Ion or Aon. I, mean, how do you I
4: don't I, know how to pronounce it either, but right. it's a
2: great. Magazine. I wonder if it, yeah, it's. Terrific. I wonder if their offices—they like say it different ways too. Uh, all right, thanks very much for being with us today. We're going to take a little break right now. We're going to come back. We wanted to leave a lot of time uh, at the end here for this one. We're, we're going to take a some—well, not a somewhat dark turn. We're going to go to a very dark place. But in that dark place, there might be uh, some little pinpricks of light that are worth looking, looking for.
5: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. We could have had Albert Brooks as a guest. Why didn't we think of that? Damn it. Amanda Fish. Why do we even hire a fish? That was such a mistake. Xandra Ellen turned down an internship with Tina Fey. Now she's like, what was I thinking? Bill Curry? Why didn't we ask Stephen Fry to play the part of Bill Curry? It's gonna drive us crazy. And now, back to Colin.
2: So we've been talking about regret in a kind of a quotidian context, right? Because just regret is something, one way or another, it's a little motor skill, a reflex uh, that we have. We do it all the time. We look back. Most of the choices and things that we regret are, you know, not world-shattering. They're, why didn't I go out with that person? Why did I act that way in that particular situation? Why didn't I speak up? Um, we we have those kinds of regrets. and And, and most of us also have probably a set of more profound regrets, ways in which we think about what we did and and how it really could have been a lot better or how perhaps it really made things a lot worse than we ever intended. Uh, And I I don't know. I I mean, I certainly have those. I'm guessing most people have a few of those. So we wanted to end the show today by talking about a perhaps the most serious kind of regret that people can have. Uh, And that is uh, situations in which Uh, They accidentally take the life uh, of another person. So um, I reread this piece uh, to get ready for this, and I then remembered reading it the first time. And each time, I mean, uh, you just can't stop reading the piece because I think we do see parts of ourselves in it, though, even though we've never experienced uh, these things. I'm talking about a piece by Alice Gregory, journalist and contributing editor uh, at – um, excuse me. Uh, at T, her writing has appeared in several publications, including the New Yorker. That's where this piece is. New York Times and GQ. Her articles have been anthologized in the Best American Sports Writing, the Best American Travel Writing. So, in uh, September of last year, she wrote this piece for the New Yorker. It's called "The Sorrow and Shame of the Accidental Killer." Also, with this is one of the people who appears in that piece, Darren Strauss, uh, author of several novels, including Chang and Eng, uh, and a memoir, Half a Life. He's a clinical professor of uh, a clinical professor of fiction at NYU's creative writing program. So, um, Alice Gregory, I'm going to talk to you first. Uh, and say that you talked to, I believe, six people who had had this experience. And one of the things that struck you as they began to describe it, there were ways in which they closely resembled one another, at least in in the style and manner of of recall and, and telling the story. Give us a little bit more of a sense of that.
5: Yeah, hi. Um yeah, this is one of the things that I found kind of most uh I guess surprising for lack of a better word. Uh their accounts were really, I would say eerily similar. Um kind of the exact just structure of the way they would tell the story and the sorts of uh mundane details that they would pick up on and um recall were all really, you know, basically all exactly the same. Which I think is interesting considering um the fact that most of us who haven't kind of had to go through something like this uh would think this is a really singular singular experience and in certain ways it is but you know the accounts of people who have actually gone through it themselves seems to suggest that there is something elemental um, either in the experience or in the way that uh, they've come to, kind of come to uh, think about it after the fact.
2: I'm Darren Strauss uh, I want to uh, ask you if you would mind telling basically your story in this connection.
3: Sure yeah thanks for having me on. Um, And hi, Alice. Good to hear your voice. Um, Yeah, uh, it's funny. It's, it's, God, it's almost 30 years now, but uh, it's still kind of hard to talk about. Uh, When I was 18, I was uh, driving with some friends on a Saturday morning uh, in Long Island where I grew up. And um, as I was driving, I saw in the far. Uh, in the distance, to the to the left, uh, uh, on a little highway I was driving on, uh, a bicyclist. She was probably 300 yards ahead of me, and I noticed that she started to wobble, and so I uh, I honked, and then she swerved across two lanes of traffic, so out of a out of a side of a road across you know the the shoulder, and then two lanes of traffic into my car, and and died. And uh, I knew her. It turned out that even though this happened a few towns over from where I was living. She had gone to my high school and actually had been a passenger in the car about two months before because I saw her on the side of the road and asked her if she wanted to
2: ride home. Um, I, uh, I'll come back to you in a second, uh, Darren. But um, Alice, one of the interesting things about this, too, was there's a sort of protagonist in your piece, a woman who has a, a story not that dissimilar uh, from Darren's uh, and who ultimately goes very public with her story after there's a, a terrible accident in the community where she lives. Um, and she actually does an essay for NPR uh, about this. A- and one of the things she's told is to, you know, get ready for a possible backlash and some hate comments, stuff like that. And and Alice, that never comes, right? Instead, the opposite comes. The opposite being a lot of people wanting to to talk about this,
5: right? Yeah, I think that was something that surprised her in a, in a good way. Obviously, um, yeah, I think it, it revealed that there's this kind of uh, totally underwritten about, underthought about, almost secret uh, community of people who've gone through something like this and haven't talked about it. Um, yeah, I think it's they, secret, they, they if all I can to. cut
3: in, if I can cut in, I think sure. it's secret because no one wants to talk about it. I didn't. I certainly didn't want to go looking for people to ch- chat with this, uh Chat about this with.
2: Right, and and Darren, your the publisher of your book um, was not entirely comfortable with everything that y- you were really kind of willing to sort of lay out your story, uh, w- I guess warts and all, if that's the right way to say it. Uh, y- even your publisher wasn't sure about doing that.
3: Yeah. Um, so, in my book, I I really wrote the book because I wanted there to be, I wish I wished that there had been something for me when I was a kid going through this that I could have read to sort of help me normalize it or, you know, understand the experience. And uh, so I talk about in the book when I'm uh, right after the accident, uh, I was in shock and I'm on the side of the road and these two women who were, I guess, uh, about my age walked by and I was sort of flirting with them. And I, I looked back and that was such shame. And I thought I had to put that in the book because that was the most awful self recriminating moment when I just sort of, hated myself for having done that. And my editor said, you know, you can't put that in. People will hate you. And I said, yeah, that's the whole point. I have to put my story in. As it happened, all, it's going to be propaganda. and That would be terrible. That would actually be the worst thing, because then if someone who lived through what I did read it and saw that, oh, this person actually didn't behave in sort of any inappropriate way, then they might feel guilty if they had. And I think that, you know, everyone acts sort of uh, – inappropriately in these moments of great stress. And so I wanted to
2: dramatize that. I have a phrase that I've developed over the years, a cheap date with your conscience. You know, a cheap date with your conscience is when you do something that's right or act in a proper manner with very little cost to yourself. This is not that. This is the opposite. This is a very expensive date with your conscience if you're really willing to, you know, to be as honest uh, as you were, Darren. Um, you know, Alice, I don't know how much thought you've given to this, but one thing, rereading your essay, I was thinking, kind of, we're, we're all that person because I'm 63 years old and I, I haven't made any chronicle of this, but I could guarantee you there are five, seven, ten times in my life where. I don't know if things had gone a little bit differently if I had not taken my eyes off something and looked out the windshield of my car or if I hadn't jerked the wheel a little bit. I mean, I just very easily could be one of these people. And I think anybody who's lived five or six decades, I mean, life is full of all kinds of collisions. We we just very easily could be that person. And and I'm wondering, too, if that's a little part of this, you know, why, in fact, I mean, I don't know, the the, U.S say was impossible not to read
5: oh yeah i think it's more than a little part i think it's it's the big part uh it's a really you know there for you know but for the grace of god go i i mean i i think everyone is I, I can't even talk about it without kind of stuttering and shivering i think you know everyone could be one of these people
2: so darren what i, I want to talk a little bit about to both of you about this because it's a big part of um, alice's piece too what ultimately helped did did anything help
3: yeah, actually writing writing it really did help. Mm-hmm. So there's a – and the research for my book, I found that there's a, a diagnosis for intense sadness that's called complicated grief disorder. And that really is just like a fancy way of saying someone's really sad. And the new therapy for that condition is that you're supposed to talk about what upsets you and speak it into a tape recorder or your phone and just record it and then play that recording over – every day for two weeks and then put the recording away and never listen to it again. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when something like this happens, the impulse is to just be quiet, never to talk about it, never to think about it. And so, you know, I lived, I guess, 18, 20 years without having talked about it to anyone basically. And then I decided to write the book and that was basically my tape. It was just living through it again and writing the story, sort of putting, putting a shape to it because, you know, it's just kind of like this amorphous, pain that sits on your head like a toad on a stone or something. And so then when you actually decide to tell it, you have to take control of the material. And, and that sort of gives you a measure of power over this over the material.
2: Um, Alice, one thing that you talk about in the essay is this uh, notion within philosophy called moral luck, the, the notion that even in situations where really the randomness of reality is what causes one person to, to wind up having something like this happen and, and being responsible in a way for the the loss of a human life, um, that, that even though it's random, even though it could have happened to me or you, Alice, instead of to Darren, that there's some way in which we want to assign morality to this.
5: Right, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it, I, I say in the piece, you know, there, there's there's a long kind of philosophical tradition of thinking about, um, it's not accidents, calling it accidents necessarily, but kind of just um, like the, the the distinction between intention and effect. That there's like a long philosophical history of that. But actually, the the actual concept of moral luck um, was kind of not introduced until like the late 70s. Um, and you know, the example given is you know the lorry truck driver who runs into a child. I think that's an interesting part of this, is it seems like a really somehow profound and elemental or primal experience or fear. But then when you start thinking about it, it's actually perhaps not so surprising that this wasn't thought about directly by philosophers until quite recently, just because the, the tools for accidentally killing people like, literally didn't exist until quite recently. Right? Like in the, the deep past, I don't know how you would have accidentally killed another person Um, it was a rock or something but until the industrialized revolution there weren't these machines there weren't cars so you know there is this kind of um, philosophical discussion but it's Kind of surprisingly recent, actually.
2: Right. Although, actually, as you point out uh, in, in your book, uh, for example, there's there's that Louise Erdrich novel where uh, a hunting accident results in, in the death of a uh, accidental death of a child. And, and so, I mean, that's something you don't need an industrial revolution for. Um, Alice, I wanted to say, you know, Darren Strauss got something out of um, writing about this, as he just described. Uh, did you find—are there resources? Are there— uh, let's say you're not maybe the person who's who's gonna be able to write about it. Are there things that seemed to help people?
5: Um Yeah, anecdotal or just you know, from my my reporting, you know, just anecdotally it seems like talking about it, as Darren said, is important. Um you know that sounds cliche, but I think it seems to really help people. I mean, one of the one of the things that made me want to write the article in the first place is there's just actually no uh there hasn't really been any studies on this actually. So we, we really don't know. Uh the closest we come is Um, You know, studies on, you know, uh, PTSD in the military, something called moral injury. but we don't really have I, – I actually just don't. There isn't really a technical answer to that question because there just hasn't been that much research done. Right.
2: Uh, so, Darren, uh, this will be the last question of the, of the show today, but um, you must wonder, like, like you're sitting here right now having this conversation with me, um, uh, you know, if if this hadn't happened, do you think your life would be radically different? Would you be in a different, pl- different place doing different things today?
3: My gut reaction is to say yes, but I guess you never know. But it seems like it was – a very formative thing for me you know um and that one thing i wanted to mention was it's not the only people who were had done wrong i mean i was exonerated of all guilt all the, the police everyone said that there was nothing i could have done and even later i found that she was committing suicide by driving, riding her car into my her bike into my car but that didn't help it wasn't it wasn't as if that was some sort of reprieve i'd still felt like uh, I had done something terribly wrong, even if i hadn 't and I think that is maybe why this resonates with people too is that I think we all feel some sort of or all of us feel culpable about something we 're not guilty of if that makes sense and I think we all have, if you do, like you said if you live a long life, there are complicated things that happen to you, and, and some things are just not easily worked through because there 's not really an easy answer.
2: Darren Strauss, thank you so much for sharing your story today and uh, the memoir Uh, Half a Life. Uh, Thanks also to Alice Gregory, who wrote the piece in The New Yorker that got all this started. Thanks to all of you who listened, too, and thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan, who brought this show together with her usual artfulness uh, and empathy. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.